Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. Hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. It's another day in the isolation period. I'm starting to see a little rays of sunshine here and there. I'm reaching out to a lot of people and I'm starting to hear about some site surveys being conducted. And uh, most of those are coming with at least a 90% chance of actually happening later this season, which is very exciting. I'm starting to see a lot of people get back to work and I'm starting to see job openings and every little bit is, is very exciting. Starting to raise my optimals, which makes me very happy. Lately, I've been getting some emails that have been very exciting where people are, they've all learned new things. They, you know, in the first month, a lot of people went straight to online classes and uh, video tutorials, and they, they all have all these brand new skills and they're, they're really looking for somebody to, to show them off to. And so they've been looking for mentors and it's, it's a double-edged sword for me because number one, I love getting these emails of people that are very excited and, and I love hearing their, their motivation and their willingness to, to move forward. And, and I love being able to make connections and send them to somebody that, that they would love to hear from or somebody that they've been looking up to, somebody who they've read in the, in the pages of PLSN. But it's also, it's also really tough for me because I know that there's, there's really no shows. There's no live shows to put these skills towards that are that don't uh, that aren't in a small studio, somebody's garage, or you know some sort of VR studio or a green screen, and so it's really tough. But I said I made the story long so that I could kind of expound on the fact that I'm excited to share these this knowledge and that for people to be reaching and asking for connections makes me feel. Like I still have value in our industry. So I thought today it would be a great way to have that discussion with somebody who's also been getting similar emails. And so please welcome Justin Chatham. He is an associate designer at the activity in Las Vegas. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it, Justin. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be on your show. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. I know that you kind of had a similar path into the industry. You were kind of on the peripheral and then you finally decided like, wow, whatever those guys are doing, that's cool. I want to do that. And you just kind of dove head in and you're like, teach me everything. <laughs> so, so let's start at the beginning. Like what brought you into the entertainment world in the first place? I've been in the entertainment world since I was a child because I was on Sesame Street uh, when I was a, a little kid. And then I was a musician most of my life. I went to the Fame High School of Music and Art, and I started college as a music major. And then I guess in college, I also did a radio show and I was DJing and it's kind of like the beginning of the tech 
tech stuff and friends of mine that didn't go to college worked in nightclubs and I'd go mess with the lighting systems there. And it was all pre-internet, so you couldn't like look things up. So I would go down to like SLD, get the catalogs for the track spots and, and I was into all that stuff. Uh, and I think at that point, I didn't really realize it was a job. There certainly weren't moving like programmer jobs as prevalent at that point as there are today. There certainly were bands touring and things like that, but it seemed like a distant fantasy of like, how do you get that job kind of thing. And then wow. I also really just wanted to DJ. So I DJed uh, after college and then started working as an electrician uh, just for money. And then was always kind of good at it because I was, was comfortable. I'd been in theaters, I'd been in those environments uh, before and it just was came really naturally. And one thing led to another and just would get recommended for other jobs. And, you know, I did uh, party lighting a bit, uh, then did fashion, then ended up getting into television. And then from television kind of got into feature film work and then was always kind of conventional board hopping throughout all that stuff. And then at a certain point uh, in my early thirties was kind of like, you know, twiddling with the plan to switch to programming. And I think it was like 35 or something like that. And I finally approached Patrick Dearson about teaching me, uh, you know, if I could show up on my days off and ask questions when appropriate without being interruptive and stuff like that. And then uh, just took every opportunity to try to learn from that point, you know, go to the shop and use a console. MA had their stuff that was, you know, the offline stuff was all free. So that was a great resource back then. Uh, you had to get them to send you a DVD. There was no YouTube videos back then. <laughs> Someplace, you know, the, yeah. it was much more difficult to get information and the, to learn this stuff back then. But uh, if you persevere, you know, and you ask people for help or, you know, and be patient about it and not be demanding, you know, it's kind of one of those things you always just appreciate people's uh, generosity and uh, be humble about it. And most people are pretty happy to, uh, to help somebody who's trying to, to better themselves and learn new stuff. Absolutely. All right, so we're gonna get into all of that, but we're gonna start from the beginning. I'm not sure if you tried to gloss over it because uh, you don't wanna talk about it, but we have, to, we have to hear, how did you end up on Sesame Street as a, as a child? <laughs> uh, I believe a friend's, my mom's friend worked for the children's television workshop and asked her, like, do your kids want to be on Sesame Street? And we went in for an interview. You do an audition, but I think they basically just to see if you were interactive when they're asking questions and talking and stuff like that. And I ended up being on like seven or eight episodes uh, over like a two year period or something like that. You were just that adorable. They're like, nah, Justin has to know the way to Sesame Street. I looked the same back then. I have the. I finally got copies of them. I I, I don't share them <laughs> too much. <laughs> but, nice. Uh, they do exist. So did that come because your parents were also in the entertainment industry, or is that because no, was it just completely no. random? Just completely random. They used to shoot the. I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, and the studio for Sesame Street used to be on seventy. 80th Street and Broadway. So it was like up, you know, we grew up in the Upper West Side and it was like kind of, you know, I don't know. Like my mom's, like I said, my mom's friend worked for them and I think she'd met us and was like, oh, your kids would be great. Do you want to have them come in and audition? And so my mom was the stay-at-home mom and then a bookkeeper and stuff like that. My dad was a probation officer. So nobody in my family was kind of in the business. I just, uh, 
you know, was talented. Ooh. And at some point my mom paid attention or a teacher said something like your kid's very talented. He should go to music school or whatever. So okay. Manhattan School of Music's preparatory division. But yeah, I was only, that was my, my 15 minutes of fame. And I've been going downhill ever since. <laughs> <laughs> I, hit the, I hit the big league too young. It was too little. <laughs> So much like uh, all of us, what are we? We're Gen X. I, th I think we're Gen X. I think that's what we are. I think we grew up on Sesame Street. That was the only show available to us when we were sat in front of a, a TV screen at that age. Yeah, that the Electric Company, Mr. Yeah, Rock, was like four shows basically. You only had like yeah, that's, those. That was our upbringing. <laughs> so you would clearly you would watch Sesame Street before you got to go down to, and learn the way to Sesame Street. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was the beginning. I mean, it went Sesame Street came out in like 71 or something. So it only been on a few years. So yeah, I don't know. I don't remember how popular it was. I do remember watching it. But uh, and okay. people, I, I the kids in school and stuff like that. People. people <laughs> That's nice. A little bit. So. And then as an adult, then you have like friends having kids that then you get the, the weird email or the call being like, were you on Sesame Street as a kid? They're like, I'm watching this with my kids. You know, they're watching the DVDs of the old episodes and seeing me and still recognizing me basically as an adult basically so it's an interesting uh it's interesting all right obviously you were young i'm not going to expect uh, you to remember too much but what was it like being on the set of sesame street do you remember like all the behind the scenes stuff going on was that was that it, memorable pregnant the one memory that i always remember is being in the studio and seeing uh, the snuffleupagus you know a costume hanging in the ceiling and <laughs> I'm like, hey, look, it's Snuffleupagus. And of course, that's Big Bird's imaginary friend. So all the actors and stuff were pretending they couldn't see it. So I'm like, he's like right there. Like stuff, stuff, it's right there. And then I basically, I think I clicked in my head like, oh, they're all pretending. And that was it. Like, <laughs> But that's my one member. But I remember being behind the garbage can and being on set and stuff like that. So it's probably mixed in. I actually worked as an electrician on Sesame Street as an adult as well. Uh, and when it was in Kaufman Astoria Studios. So it got to be on the set as an adult then, and, uh, and again, as a, in a working profession. Different. So people. the veil was lifted for you at a very young age. You're like, oh, this is all, they're all actors and these are all just puppets, man. Yep, and they're all pretending, so. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, I mean, you you didn't have any other choice at that point to just go into the entertainment business because you already knew, like you couldn't, <laughs> you couldn't watch movies anymore and be engrossed in the in the magic and the mystery anymore. No, no, it was interesting. And then, like growing up too, my mom used to take us to the movies because uh, she would say she was like, "Your dad wouldn't give me money for a babysitter," so she would just take us to the movies. So she would take us to see all sorts of adult movies, not like, but like you know, rated all that jazz. I saw Raging Bull, Alien. Like <laughs> you know, when I'm like six and seven years old, like because my mom wanted to go to see the movies she wanted to see. So she would just take us to go see those movies too. Like <laughs> some people say it explains a lot. They're like, <laughs> <laughs> and next so, thing you know, you've ended up on the on the island of lost toys with all the other roadies. You're like, yeah, this is these are my people. <laughs> I'm equally damaged goods here, you know? <laughs> it worked out very well. It was very well. <laughs> Little did you all know that she was carving you out to be the perfect entertainment uh, technician professional you know like this is <laughs> you're among your people <laughs> <laughs> it's a very funny story so but yeah yeah it was uh every you know it's been it my whole career has been very uh, very very lucky i always feel like all the whenever i was trying to do something i never really got impeded 
So it's uh, it, that started from a young age, I guess. <laughs> oh man, that is the that's the sort of story that people in the Midwest or people that like grow up uh, never in a big city until they're in their teens would never understand. You know, that's that's the sort of story that you can only get in an entertainment town like L.A., Vegas, or New York City. You're like, yeah, this is that's how I grew up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It was it was you know weird, and then also like. I don't know, I just was around, like, when I was in kindergarten, the dude that's in uh, Christmas Story, Peter Billingsley, was in my, cl- my class, basically, when I was in, in grade school. And then he left to go to L.A., kind of thing. But it's like, so I had known, like, it was weird, because they were, like, met other famous people from a very young age also, besides from being on Sesame Street. Um, and then, like, you know, just being in New York, it was around in, in, after fourth grade, I went to a private school called Walden, where um you know mark hamill's kid went so you'd see like luke skywalker in the hallway shaka khan's kid went there this is where um uh what's his face went to uh matthew broderick went to high school there so it was like you know all that other stuff was also like they're just normal people you feel comfortable around people that other people are maybe more starstruck by but just kind of grew up around that and then in that and then go to high school uh there are definitely several famous people i went to high school with that are now you know very famous and stuff like that as well so it just was always comfortable being around that you know the environment i guess as intimidating for me i remember my high school where you know the cool kids were only slightly more popular than the other ones whereas you know some of these the 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 entertainment city schools, you know, those, the cool kids have an international audience, you know, that's, that makes, that's a big difference there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Marlon Wayne's went to my high school. There are girls that were models that went, you know, that uh, there was definitely a barrage of different people that uh, went to LaGuardia that, that when I was in school there. So it was uh, interesting. Big, it's a big, you know, you kind of like one of those things you feel like, oh, like I'm not famous yet. I'm 16. My friend's famous. <laughs> so, right. But it's fun, you know. I can only imagine that's very humanizing, though. You're like, yeah, you're, you know, you're Mark Hamill's son, but you're also failing chemistry right now. So, you know, you're human. <laughs> I guess so. The you know, to other people, I don't know. It's, it's a uh, fame is a very interesting. Um, and, and success is an interesting, uh, I don't know, recipe. It's very yeah. It's it's a, it's a weird concept that we've kind of created. Yeah, we, we make we and give people that, value based on their skills. Yeah, and with the internet and stuff, I think being a local celebrity or loving that local scene thing is kind of diminished. I would think you know, I, I you know, I feel like even in New York, you're kind of like, you know, people move to New York to become a big fish. You know become part of that ecosystem and you don't have to do that anymore you could become famous from any place basically with the internet yeah that's true and all that kind of stuff so it's i think it's it's even higher bar now especially with now you can keep track of how many friends you have online and all these other things it's always just in your head that you are famous like back in the day you're like, yeah i'm popular even if you weren't popular you could feel popular <laughs> So after Sesame Street, you said you got more into music. Uh, I would imagine that included an instrument first, and then you started DJing? Yeah, I was a percussionist for throughout my life. I went to Manhattan School of Music's preparatory division at like seven or eight, and continued to study music through high school into college at, uh, at in different places, basically. 
uh, after I left Manhattan School of Music, I was in, um, there's a school in the East Side, I forget, but I learned how to play timbales and more like Latin percussion and stuff like that for like two years. And then uh, I was going to LaGuardia for high school. So it was, it was an all city orchestra. I was in several performing groups in within the school. I was also performed in the New York Youth Symphony which performs at Carnegie Hall and then do a, they do a joint, the All City Orchestra does a joint concert with the New York Philharmonic. So, you know, we've done all these performances and stuff in high school by the end that were, you know, pretty, pretty cool. So I basically performed in a bunch of places, you know, that people right were performing in by the time I was out of high school. Uh, but all through percussion, like classical percussion, timpani, xylophone, bells, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then I'm playing jazz band as well, some and was in the pit for uh, the musical in our high school for three years. We did uh, West Side Story, Company, and I forget the other one. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so I was performing and playing music all through high school and into college. Some of my favorite programmer designers have all been drummers. There, there's just something that links the two. It's, it's, it's magical when you see the, that just that perfect timing and uh, they're hitting every little rim shot. I love it. It's one of my favorite things to watch. Yeah, it's great. It's good. Uh, having timing has definitely been a humongous benefit to being a lighting programmer and uh, to, to be in this part of the business. So especially as a festival LD, where sometimes you're doing lighting and you don't know what bands are going to be playing for that day or they swatch bands or, you know, you're there to support everybody. So it's like being able to like listen to the music and have your buttons to push to, to make the lights go with the make it look like a pre-programmed show, even though it's not, is, uh, is, is all about the timing at that point. Because you could use some very simple tools in different ways with timing to make some very complex looking um, things on stage, so. I think where it comes in the most useful time festival shows, when all you have is the strobes and the moles to, you know, and change colors at the right time because there's, there's, you know movement doesn't do anything. <laughs> Basically, you just take all the lights, move them, point them at the audience because it's you know it's daytime. Yeah, and the only thing fly. you have to show off is your timing. You don't. There's no beams. There's no fans. There's no <laughs> positions, and there's no front light. It's just, I just timing. I put so much haze in the daytime to try to get the beams. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I uh, yeah, I get it. It's it's you know, and if you make a twinkle for the thing, and you you know. That's it. That's the, that's, that's good. Somebody has got to make the lights do that in the daytime too. Yeah. I think that's one of the things that sets the, the really exceptional programmers apart. You know, everybody can make a pretty look, but to get it, get that pretty look to change to the other pretty look at the exact right time. That's, that's where the magic happens. Yeah. Yeah. And understanding how music works and knowing that, okay, it's only me four, eight bars, 16 bar things is going to come up again. This going to thing and count, you know, keep time stuff. So even if you don't really know the music that well, you can kind of, if you understand how music works, you, you know where the changes are going to, to happen unless they do something, you know, I mean, unfortunately, most of the time it's predictable. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes you get cut off and then, uh, but you went for it. So it still looked good. Yeah. So was it like a uh, gradual progression or was it kind of an aha moment when you decided to switch from music to the technical side? No, it all kind of came together. Like, I mean, I was doing in college, I switched from being a music major to political science. <laughs> okay. Ithaca, Ithaca does mostly, they, they basically, they have a very good music program, but I definitely didn't want to become a performance major because I wanted to study other things because I've been studying music in high school and all these other stuff. 
So I just, and then the other thing that the Ithaca does very well is make music teachers. And I knew I didn't want to be like a high school music teacher or something like that. So I decided to switch majors and political science was interesting and fun. And then I took all my electives in communications since so I took intro to film, I had a radio show, you know, and so I started to learn how to do all that stuff. And then from having the radio show, we used to take out gear from the communication school to just do projects for fun. But like we would take, even though we had a radio show, we'd take a video gear. My friend would always laugh. He's like, well, what are we going to tell them? Like, we have a radio show. We'll tell them we're making promos. You're like, but with video? So I would just laugh. Like, there's no rules. We're in the park school. We have a radio show. We're allowed to do whatever we want. And I think that's one of the other things, you know, that was good learning that there's no real, there's rules, but there's no rules. But our business is a very big no rule business in terms of like, you know, making adopting new technology and doing new things and trying to do stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I, I was fascinated with the technical stuff. So we had to take all sorts of equipment out from the uh, communication school and shoot things. And it was still was linear um, editing back then. Learned how to edit film on, a, you know, cutting it on a block and taping it together. And it was a long, long time ago. And then I just was like, you know, being in the, going to the, see my friends at the club and seeing all the stuff and then being an electrician kind of just got closer to it. And then as I did, it, the internet started to come out and you could look manuals up and learn how to do anything you want, basically. And then I did that. And there's a moment where when somebody says, uh, can you program the console? And you turn and say, yes. And then you just have to be able to do it <laughs> at that point. But uh you know, when I was just, when I was doing conventional stuff, I got asked on a job and I was like, yes. And I was like, well, no, but yeah, like, yes, I know how it does it. I just haven't done it much. And they were like, great, <laughs> teach you how to do it. And we're going to get, you know, and that's, and I got this gig on the Montel Williams show basically as the second. So I had to be able to fill in the board. And so I learned a lot of board op stuff from that. And this was like my first TV, TV gig. Uh, and uh, I went from there. So it was, it was, it was good. Oh, the days of when we would have like three different consoles. You'd have a conventional, a house lights, and a moving light console. That those were the days. You have three yeah, guys all wow. having to work in unison. This is even before that. Still, still trying to put like the you know you'd have like three. We had like three moving lights on Montel, and that was like the big deal. So we could like move the logo around, and it was like, and it would be on the Expression. It was like Expression Two X was the uh, the workhorse for years. It was a great console. But yeah, and then I got into the union, the film union, when I was working on uh, technically one from Montel, they changed ownership of the show from Viacom to Paramount. I got into Local 52 and then uh, I signed up on the list and I started doing film jobs. And then that also worked out well because when I went to my first union meeting, I saw another friend from high school. And when I showed up on the job next, the next day, he was on the job. So I got introduced to the rest of the crew as Joe's, uh, Justin, Joe's friend from high school. So of course that works in, in those situations because then you're like, oh, you're Joe's friend? We'll show you what you have to do. Because I'd never seen film distribution equipment like before I showed up on a film set, on a union film set basically and saw the 100 amp paddles was like, whoa, what the fuck is this shit? So, because I basically just did TV studio and some theater stuff. So, and then they taught me what to do and I paid, paid attention and worked hard and that was great. And, did that for a while while I was doing some production electrician jobs, you know, programming, you know, the conventional stuff and just being a production electrician so I could be around those types of jobs with moving lights and all that kind of stuff over the years. And played I just had the, the uh, a flash of the Godfather in my in my brain there where it's like, yeah, this is Justin. He's 
He's a friend of Joe. Are you going to take care of Justin? You're going to show him the ropes. It worked out very well. Uh, you know, there's, I'm still friends with all these guys, so it's very good. It was, it was great. And I was, I was, so one of the best things about that also was you got like this one friend of mine who I talked to the other day named Scotty Gregor, where I was working on that TV show, Oz. And I was like 27. It's also like, all right, I'm on the big show. This is great. I'm working on like busting my ass, trying to work, hard, work as hard as I could. And this guy, Scotty, takes me aside. He goes, hey, come help me with this thing. We're going to go over here. So we go into this back set. And he goes, hey, let's, we're going to play cards. Let's play cards. So we go to the back. And I'm there like stunned. I'm like, play cards while I'm at work? Like, I'm just wanting to be like working. And he kind of said to me, he goes, you think everybody who's here is here because they're the best technician? He goes, you're going to spend more time with these people than you spend with your family. He goes, they need to like you. And he's like, uh, he goes, we should probably go back now. <laughs> so then played cards for 10, 15 minutes and then went back to set. And that was it. Like we, I was there working and it was kind of one of those eye-opening moments of like, not only do you have to work hard, you also have to like work in a way that doesn't make other people look bad sometimes, which is a silly thing. But you No, it's to, so true. You also have to play nice with all the other kids, uh, you know, and uh, and figure out what the, the the rules are of that crew or that team or whoever you're working for, kind of at that moment. But uh, in a bigger bigger picture, I, you know, I think being nice and being liked was always a humongous part of uh, working. But I, I like Godfather style from a from a guy who was like, yeah. hey, let me tell you, kid, like I see you working very hard, like. That's not the only thing that that counts, basically. And it was like a you know young guy moment from like an older you know older cat that uh, is still you know still out there. So it's great. I fear that the corporatization of our industry that we've lost a lot of that. And maybe it's you know it's come down to the bottom line where we've just had to scrap all that, and we've kind of lost touch with the fact that no, if we're working seventy hour weeks with these people, we have to. We have to like each other. If we don't, our work environment can come can become toxic very quickly. Yeah, yeah, it certainly helps. I mean, for years uh, when I was working in New York doing all the freelance TV stuff with the same group of guys for forever, uh, it just felt like going to hang out with your friends and you're hanging lights at the same time and running cable. But basically you're spending the day with like a handful of friends. Yeah. For, for a very, very long time. It was great. I mean, it's still like that now. I want to go to work. I want to be with, with positive people that, you know, want to, that are all there. Like I just, you know, I'm there to, to do it, but I'm also there to everybody trying to pay their bills and there for different reasons and stuff like that. And uh, I think there's a bigger picture people need to just understand, but it's uh, about, uh, you know, being nice and uh, trying to get along with everybody and, and, Having, having that be part of the pleasantness of being at work and the enjoyableness of it, you know, it doesn't make the day go quicker when someone next to you is complaining the whole time. about what's That happening. outlook seems, it feels so much more natural and even tribal to me. Like, yes, we're out foraging and we have to find berries and we have to find uh, mushrooms and we have to find all the wild edibles, but we also have to like each other. We all have to hang out because we're going to be doing this a lot. You know, this is, you know, why, why make this, you know, any less enjoyable than it needs to be. We should totally hang out. We should totally play cards and, and enjoy each other's company while also providing for our family. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I think the, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, that's what makes work fun. It's going to go hang out with my friend. I mean, that's what made this year really difficult because, you know, since we do get flown, we get to was talking before about being a fancy programmer because we get flown around for work. But because of that, it also means that most of my friends don't live near me all the time. There are people that you'd be seeing at work regularly because you're basically working all that time. And then uh, you do get to a point where you kind of alienate your local friends that have regular jobs because they're just like, well, you're never here. <laughs> and you're like, well, I was working. And then you come, you know, and so it's like, not that whatever, but it definitely feel like, oh, it's special. Like you showed up and you're like, I've just been working a lot, I'm sorry. But they don't understand the the fact that the, your job requires you to leave, leave town as much or they don't, you know, they just don't relate to that as much. But, but, you know, so it's tough. And now we haven't seen everybody that we, usually see and all the other families that we have and stuff outside of our homes. So it's, it's been a, it's been a weird year. Yeah. So you mentioned fancy programmer. Let's uh, let's get into the, the moment where you decided that you're like, you know what, I'm tired of humping for I'm tired of uh, running the little console. When did you make the decision? You're like, I want to be a fancy programmer. <laughs> And, and my, uh, my like, listeners, you can't you can't see us throwing up the air quotes. We're we're putting air quotes around fancy programmer. My fancy programming. Um, yeah, yeah. In my thirties, I guess was the beginning of it. I think I just was uh, um, frustrated with the type of work I was doing at that point, and it wasn't as much fun. And the conventional board up job went away, and I kind of was I doing those. You know, I was distracted because I was I was working on all these fun things. I mean, I worked on like War of the Worlds. I worked at Inside Man. I got to work on all these crazy feature films and then all these cool high-end commercials and stuff. So I learned a lot of stuff about lighting. We worked with all these great DPs uh, during that time, but then it just got to a point where it wasn't as fun and I just wanted to be, the moving light stuff was moving forward. And I felt like, all right, I, I need to go grab onto that now. And uh, so I did, I don't know, it just was, it's just, I don't know if there was a moment I was having back problems. Um, you know, it just was one of those things I, I was look, looking at the future of like, I don't want to be in pain. I can't do this. And uh, that stuff's fun. And, you know, let me stop being in the background and being looking at other people's work, thinking I could do better or whatever and get into the game and, and do it, you know, and just, if, you know, if you can't, if you're not a player, you can't complain about the game. Yeah. So, like you can't complain about other people's programming and then just not and not know how to do it or be doing it. So I, and it was a good slow transition. I had saved money. So, you know, I took, there was a moment where I was going to take, stop taking electrician jobs and I just figured I'd be slow. Uh, and I was, when I was gaffing, I would take jobs that needed like a one look wonder or something, you know, so you, I would gaff and program some smaller jobs and some other things like that. Um, and then there was a cutoff point when I was like, all right, like, this this month that's it like i'm just gonna be just gonna be a programmer i'm gonna stop taking jobs as electricians and things like that and uh luckily it worked out like i got i did all these other smaller gigs and all these other you know things and it just one job went to the next to the next and it, it, uh, it was a happy transition luckily some busted knuckles and a, and a sore back is a really good motivation to go sit in the chair out front of house and learn the console and learn how to and, and show your skills. Yeah, and at that time, film wasn't really coming along with using the technology in, uh, in, in as it is now, basically, with more of the virtual and all this stuff. Film is definitely catching up in terms of using uh, control systems in the past. You know, I, I've kind of stepped out of that world 
a good, I don't know, 10 years at least where I was, you know, doing that work regularly. Um, but they definitely seem to be catching up at this point, but back then they weren't. And uh, it was frustrating because I wanted to be around the technology. So I just went in a different direction to do all the live events and all this other stuff. And it was fun. And, and you know, luckily, even at the time of asking Patrick, Patrick was going from programming to more production design and needed a programmer. So since he trained me, if there was a situation where I got stuck, he could always jump in and help me basically and stuff like that. And then I was, I would take any programming job basically at that point and uh, to work for a wide variety of people doing all sorts of some small chintzy things and, you know, things and then just slowly, you know, I never was trying to rush to be the guy that did the big gigs. I just wanted to have successful gigs. So, and then in time, the gigs just slowly got bigger and bigger and, and now I get to do some pretty large events. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty fun. That's cool to sit back and reflect on like, oh my God, I've, I'm kind of a fancy programmer now. It is. Yeah. It's, it was, yeah, it was the whole idea was that being flown to your job was because I was a local. So being, you know, I would take the train to work or whatever. So the idea of being flown to go work was fancy. <laughs> it is. It's, it's still, still, it's still very fancy. I, I'm very, I feel very, very lucky to be in the position I am uh, to, and to have to, to work with the people I do and to get to do the jobs I do. I, it's very, 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 very lucky. So it's, I appreciate it every day. Still to this day, I feel like kind of a fraud sometimes when people buy me a ticket to go somewhere else. I'm like, clearly there's somebody else closer to go do that than me. Like you want me to go do it. And I, Sometimes I get the flights. I'm like, they don't even know that I'm not that good. And I, you know, I, maybe I shouldn't be saying that too loud to too many people, but sometimes I, I feel, I feel fancy. My running joke is always that uh, I may not be the best, but I was the best available. So <laughs> you don't have to, you, you, the best guy can't be at every single job. Like it's, it's just impossible, right? impossible for that to happen. So they need other very, you know, people who are talented to fill in the gaps. So. And then I think yeah. I ask for anything super duper special or overly technical. I started at first, I'd have that anxiety at every job. Like, oh my God, they're going to like stump me or I'm going to get to a spot. I'm not going to know what to, how to do it or I'm not going to be able to achieve what they want. And uh, I never had that problem, luckily. And then I kind of would bond on me like, oh, I guess if they were asking for something super duper particular, the, you know, skill, like a particularly time code or some sort of other skill, they would mention it ahead of time. Which is pretty much the case. Like if somebody might right. say, hey, I'm gonna do this thing and it involves time coding with MIDI triggers and all sorts of other stuff. If you either say, Yeah, I could figure that out, or I know how to do that, or I'm that's not for me, it's kind of thing. So yeah. it's uh it the that anxiety went away and over time. So it takes a while to defeat that anxiety because I, I I remember having that all the time. Like, oh my God, some they're gonna they're gonna discover me, they're gonna realize I'm a fraud, they're gonna know that I'm just a chucklehead who wants to be behind the console and not looking for odd anymore. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean I just you know, I always was always very good and attentive. Patrick gave me trained me with the programming skills beyond knowing how to use the console. And there's a lot of those skills that uh that are lacking sometimes with people, but uh it's uh yeah like it's you know the program cool. goes away in time <laughs> when did you realize that patrick dearson was the guy that you were going to reach out to and you're like oh that's the guy that i think he can train me i was on a lot of jobs back then in the city that he was programming on and he he was an interesting character he, st he still is but back then i would be, we'd be loading in and he'd come in at the front of house and put his feet up on the console 
and you know, Grimes waiting on you. And then it would be like the cons will turn on and everything would happen like magic. I don't know. He just was always very good. He was always very good at his shows looked good. And there was a way he carried himself, uh, an air of confidence. And he dressed up, which I always was like, I want to dress up for work. Like that was always kind of one of those cool things. And then uh, mm -hmm. he was good. So, and he was on all these jobs. So he just seemed like the, one of the guys that, and he was approachable and nice. And we got along, you know, because it was back then I kind of like hover at front of house and like make sure those guys were okay. So I could be peeping in and what was going on anyway. And I'd set front of house up and do all that stuff as part of the, the jobs back then. And uh, he, and he was very receptive to it basically, you know, it wasn't, uh, he was, you know, like, I think he gave me like, are you off next week? And I was like, yeah, I'm off that day. He's like, come, come here and, you know, go to the Hammerstein ballroom. And he would have me, he would play a designer and I would be updating presets for him on a job that he'd be like, you know, designer programmer on, LD programmer. So I show up and just volunteer to help and learn how to update presets and do stuff. And then, you know, go back home and look at my console offline and keep studying and then, that turned into gigging and stuff eventually. So I'm going to do other gigs and then do that. And, you know, it, was, it, was, it worked out well. That is the air of confidence that it takes to keep moving forward. You have to be able to say, hey, I want to know more from you and just be able to be willing to be brave and vulnerable and, and you know, say, hey, whatever yeah. it is that you're doing, I want to be there too. And uh, it, it's so hard for me because you, in one re respect, you want to go to that person and say, Hey, whatever you're doing, I want that too. But at the other time you, you're just, you're being vulnerable. You're like, Hey, I want to soak up some of your knowledge. Can you please bestow yeah, can, some of that upon me? Yeah. Can I come in my free time and help you in any way I can to, uh, learn? I mean, it's called an internship. People go to college and do internships basically so they can go do this. You don't have to have a real internship to find somebody to intern with technically, you know I mean? It's like, just trying to get somebody to, to teach you the stuff. And even back then I would go to uh, the shops and ask them if I could use consoles and stuff. And then be, you know, I, I got a hard time. One guy gave me a hard time and I just was, I didn't, you know, yell bark back at him. I just said, Hey, if I show up and you have to send the console out cause you rented it, I'll thank you for giving me the opportunity to try to come in and I'll reschedule another day. And then the guy turned, it was like, Hey, I'm really sorry for giving you our time, dude. It's cool that you tried it. You know, it's like, you just, some people don't understand what you're trying to accomplish sometimes. So it's, it's uh, but Patrick was always very receptive and, uh, and cool about things and taught me a lot of things about just being a programmer and having a different, it's because it's a different set of professionality and you have clients, you're not just on the crew. It's just a different type of thing that it turned into. So it's, uh, it's in everybody's best interest. If there's a console sitting there and they can get more people to learn how to use that console. It's only going to go out more often, the more people that know how to use it. You yeah, know, if, if, if somebody calls up Justin and he knows that and he doesn't know the MA1, ask for an Ava lights to be there. If MA1, then MA1 is going to show up. Yeah. You know? I mean, I think MA's, uh, you know, tradition of giving all the software for free for offline so you can learn how to use it without making you pay has been a, a, a tremendous marketing uh, thing for them because the, the Verilite console was out then too, and I approached PRG about getting the offline software, and then they never followed up with me. So I ended up going to the MA. So look how that turned out for everybody. <laughs> it's 
it's that simple. It's like, yeah, we want you to know how to use this so that when you show up on a show site, you'll ask for us. And there yeah. it is. Yeah, it was very, you know, it was, uh, it was great. It still is. I, I still enjoy using the MA2 software. I think the MA3 software is uh, making progress, but still, you know, I'm being patient that it'll be something that will be more desirable in, in time. You know, when the MA2 software came out, we didn't really like it very much. And, and now we like it a lot. So I'm going to be patient and let them do their thing. Yep. I remember when MA1 came out, the, well, and then after I was familiar with MA1, I'm like, there's nothing else that console can do beyond an M what an MA1 does. And then the two came out like, oh, yeah, this is, this is way better. This is really cool. Yeah, the layout, the real layout views, the layout views were amazing. I mean, the 3D view is great too, but the layout views was, was is, is, it still was and still is one of the best things in the console. Yeah. Uh, in terms of flexibility. But MA3 can implement all, all that same ingenuity and innovation eventually. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that it's, you know, I, I see, I, I see, I see some of what they're trying to do. Um, so like I said, I'm just going to be patient. Uh, That's good. That's very political of you. I, I'm not, I just am just going to give them time. I think some of this stuff is, is super powerful. The phaser concept, I think is great. I think, yeah. you know, having everything, what's a, you know, one, what's red, it's a one-step chase, you know? So the concept of all the stuff is, is, is amazing and powerful and they're, they're working on it. So, so it'll be, the two software is amazing. For, I love it. So now being with activity, have trained a lot of previs and stuff. Are you finding that the next step that everybody's uh, going to have to previs? Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, I don't think everybody has to previs, but I think that it's an important tool going, you know, that's been, seems to be exploding in popularity, especially with what's going on now, because it could be used in, in these other virtual environments that weren't possible before. But yeah, I think for some smaller type shows, it, you know, probably not necessary. I think it's great as a tool. Uh, I love the Vectorworks tool to import the, you know, the stage view right into uh, the, the the MA, so then I can make layouts from those cameras and things like that. is super duper powerful and makes things go really nice and quickly. So even on a smaller show, I'll use that tool to, and then and then I have the the 3D if I need it, basically. But I'm also very much of one, like since I programmed conventional consoles that didn't have screens or layouts and the MA1, like in my head, I'm very good at like just seeing all this stuff anyway, I guess. It's, I don't know. It's weird to think about it. So as much as like one of my new goals lately, especially for corporate shows, is to pre-program as much of the show without any previs or even knowing really what the show is going to be like, because no matter what, all my lights are going to go into stage one that stage one position is going to be programmed into my main cube, my main executor. So you can have all the tools basically you need to program. And then basically when I get a, a site, which is really what I think previs is, if you don't have a, the, if you don't have content to, to previs with, which most corporate shows I don't have ahead of time, then there's a lot of like, you're just updating all your basic focuses, but I'm going to have to do that on site anyway. And it takes, I'm very quick at it at this point. So for some of that stuff, I don't bother to previs. But yeah, I think previs is wonderful. I love prevising for some bigger shows. You save, you know, like for a show, like we do some of these festivals where it's a one day load in and then the show's the next day and there's 28 acts. You can't do that show without previs. Like that's a two, three days of prevising. 
so that all my focuses are really, really close to where they're going to be because uh, our models are built really well. So it's, it's, uh, it's great. So I will, I'll go, I'll take you one step further. I'm starting to get kind of judgmental about programmers based on how long they take to load a show file and have their presets done. I can tell a really good programmer when they show up, they put in their USB stick and they're like, they just, you know, they, they double check the patch, maybe inverts and pan and tilts. And they're like, yeah, good. All my presets are done. Like, yeah. awesome. Oh, the presets are predictable. I mean, if you're, if you're migrating your show from show to show, my scrope presets, you know, for JDC one still work, you yeah. know, really just the positions that you're, and that's why, again, with like being of the pre-programmed stuff, a lot of the stuff's very predictable. So it's easy to be like, okay, I can make this executor. I can do this. I can make all these tools and things that I'm going to use. And you just make sure that they're working on the rig, you know, so lights are in the right mode or whatever else, but you know, it's usually goes quick. And then the up, the, the updating my uh, focuses goes, goes very, very quickly at this point. So when somebody loads up their show file and they're like, okay, so I'm going to need about three hours to build all my presets. I'm like, I, you can just tell it's going to be a rough day. Like, oh man, <laughs> this is, yes, you, you have to take three hours to do that. You, you should have done that before, but uh, let's, yeah, let's I've sit done, together and do that. And uh, for an art, one artist for a festival I did, they came in and they asked me to help them clone their show. And then basically I was like, I can't program out of this file. If you want me to program for you, you got to do this. Just, like, I don't know what you want me to do. Like, there's no presets for anything to update and do all this other stuff. I was like, if I'm programming from scratch, I'm going to load my festival file and program from that. Is that okay? You know, it's like one of those moments you're looking at people like, you, you know, I don't know. It's a very interesting cloning and the presets and all the other stuff. Like you have to work out a preset. <laughs> all your lights should be in preset in every single show. Like that's part of your own, my own personal prep is making sure that my lights are in all the appropriate presets before I get to, uh, to set we're on site or what have you like the thing it's like that i'm not really doing unless it's a unit i never used before or something that i've cloned because i have a b fixture or something else like that then you know those are the ones i'm like oh the strobe channels are didn't line up the way they they are in the manual because maybe they did a software update or something like that mm -hmm. other than that so that's the sort of experience that rarely makes it up to the accountants they, they don't realize that somebody's spending three hours building other presets in their hotel room the night before is going to save them three hours on site where you know, 20 stage hands are sitting around, the trucks are idling and, and um, who knows, maybe they're going into overtime. You know, th that, those three hours are precious. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you could just be, I mean, I, for me, I just got, I just want to do the creative stuff at that point. Like why <laughs> would I want to waste time on set doing presets when I could be making, you know, looks and making new thing, you know, little sequences and stuff like that that are more custom to the rig rather than all my generic stuff that that pretty much is have a macros that self-build most of the other stuff based on my groups and stuff. So it's uh, I just got to this point. I'm like, I'm sick of doing the same thing when I show up to a rig. Let me make something way to automate it or make it much quicker. And then that way I can just move on to the more fun creative stuff. Uh, and then you get to go play cards longer with all the people that uh, you want to hang out with. Well, you get to be friendly and social. So that's, uh, you know, you do your work ahead, then you could talk to people on site because you did your work and then your show looks, still looks good and then makes you look like uh, you're some, like the thing's magic somehow. So it's, it's uh, I don't know. <laughs>
I don't know. Like, I mean, my my other, you know, my other, uh, I guess, motto is that I mask my incompetence through over preparation. So I good one was uh, one to show up with my show file because even when I was beginning to program, I basically was like, well, I don't have the experience, and I'm probably going to get some jobs because of where I've been as a production electrician that above my programming experience. So what I felt like I lacked an experience I could make up for in over preparation. So like really knowing what the lighting plot, what, where everything is, looking at the numbers, making sure all my lights are in presets. So then when I'm coming on site, I could concentrate on the programming part because I'm not trying to figure out what the lighting plot is. And I'm not figuring out which group of lights does what. I already know which groups of lights does what. So I could just concentrate on programming those lights to do things that the designer is telling me to do now. You know, so it's uh, that's I'm cool. And figure out my own stuff and taking up their time. I do that on my own time, and then when I get there, I'm on their time, so I'm I'm there to, to perform for them. So, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> it's the best in both worlds, and the fact that when you show up and make it look easy, everybody thinks that uh, like, wow, well, Justin made it so easy, and so maybe I can, maybe on the next one, I'll get somebody else, and they'll and they they can do it just as easy they'll only take an hour and then next they, they'll get another program and then you're like no this is going to take me 3 hours to build my presets well well Justin didn't have to do that and you're like yeah well <laughs> maybe you should hire Justin next time <laughs> <laughs> yeah well that's everybody should hire Justin next time <laughs> absolutely oh it's uh, uh yeah i mean it's just part of getting onto the you know moving up the list and and uh, getting the jobs that require you to be to have the the the, the you know, to, to, to be at that level, I guess. I don't know how to explain it. I just I'm like, but it just came slowly, like as every job. Uh, and even when I was in the beginning, when I felt like my programming wasn't, you know, clean, you you know, sloppy show file, whatever. It's just a matter of going to look at what you did during that show and knowing how you can do it better the next show. And then always doing that, you kind of like, you know, the MA is like that rabbit hole that you could keep going down. There's so many other features and other things and, you know, uh, all the executor options and all the other things. So there's like 10 different ways to do stuff. Yeah. A lot of the questions on the forms and stuff are about functions that are within, you know, their reach or have already. And it just takes time to learn how to do all that stuff. So if, you know, you always figure out like, oh, I needed to do this thing. How can I do it better next time? Oh, I can actually put a world on that executor and filter all the rest of that stuff out. Like that's great. Like now I can do that next time and I don't have to make this other weird inhibitive where that <laughs> I once to make sure you know but as long as your show went well like that was a success it doesn't matter how sloppy your show file is in the beginning <laughs> trying to make it better like it's just you know it just is what it is you sometimes you have to get through the show like yeah even now like you're like you know if there's a certain point where i just will hammer some hard values in you know especially do a lot of one-offs and stuff but if it was going to be a tour and i did that i'd go back and i would make sure that they're all in their presets and update the stuff you know, after the fact. And uh, so that when I'm updating things and doing stuff, it, it works the way it's supposed to. Oh man, there have been times where I've had to hand my show file over to somebody else and I've just started pre-apologizing. Oh, okay, please don't judge me based on this or please don't look at this. Or like, I had to do this to make this happen. Please don't, don't yeah. think I do that all the time. The the best example is years ago, I had somebody, I did the, uh, I programmed a new loot game. And Steve Garner, who's now retired, was coming in to sub for me. And he goes, and he came in the day before so we could go through things. And he goes, all that unlabeled stuff you don't need, right? I was like, oh, uh, well, I didn't. He goes, because I'm going to delete anything in the console that's unlabeled tomorrow. 
<laughs> to make it less confusing for me. But he basically said that being an, him and another programmer that he covers for, they had a game basically where like if there was stuff in the console that wasn't labeled a preset or an executor or anything, that when the other person covered for them, they would delete it, all that stuff basically to keep them in check. Like if you don't need, if you didn't label it, then you clearly don't need it. So when I come in and cover for you, I'm going to delete it out of your console. And that was the moment where I was like, no problem. It'll all be labeled by tomorrow morning. <laughs> and I went back and my stuff was labeled, but it's one of those things you're like, he's absolutely right. Like, what if I had a, what if I just couldn't get into work and it's just stuff that I use that's not labeled. How is anybody else going to, to know about that? You know, or how am I going to remember? I'm old. I can't remember that shit anymore. I label everything meticulously, but that was the, that was a long time ago, but that was the beginning of like, oh, okay, he's right. Like, you have to just go back and label and make sure everything is labeled and organized. So true. I, I, there should, there should be a Steve behind everybody. Like, Hey, did you label that? Did you label that? Cause I'm going to delete it. Yeah. It's in the back of my head. Always. I'm always like, Oh, hold on. I got to go back and label all my stuff. Like somebody else comes in and they're going to delete it. So it's a good, you know, it keeps, it's good. Cause it's like another program keeping me in check to make sure my skills were getting better at the time, you know, and uh, I, I, it's still, a, a, you know, if you don't organize your stuff on smaller shows, as you do bigger shows, you're just going to get more lost and lost. Because yeah. data, you know, data entry and data management essentially is yeah. what lighting programming is. So if you can't do data management on a small amount of stuff, you're never going to be able to do it on a large amount of stuff. So it's just a good, good habit to be in. Benny Kirkham was one of the guys for me. He's like, don't, don't be afraid to tell a designer that you need just five minutes to start labeling things. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's a tough one to like look at a designer and he's like, no, I need this now. I'm like, yeah, I need, please give me five minutes to label what I just did. Cause that was really complex and I don't want to lose it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think uh, it's yeah. Or you just part of, as you're programming, you have to be labeling as you go, uh, knowing that you might not get a chance to go back. And those little moments where they see that you're labeling as you're going, they should be understanding that you're keeping the show organized. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean, and not create too much stuff. So you have to go back and label everything either. So it's uh, labeling. Yeah. Taking one minute to label something is going to save you that five minutes of like, hey, go back to the queue where we did that thing with the little zhuzhi zhuzh. Just yeah. just go and label it zhuzhi zhuzh, and oh, yeah. you know it'll, it'll... is always like that. Like it's always sorts of weird. You know, either the sound in a song, or somebody even like walk stage left or whatever. You, the motivation or where you might be taking the cue, whatever. I'm pretty unabashed about how I label. Well, I do have uh, a formula to it. So, Let's Yeah, see. Butch Allen was the one to, to kind of uh, encourage me to give them unique names like, well, you know, that floopy flop that uh, does the thingy thing, you know? Like, oh, that's... <laughs> if, I, if I remember the floopy floop that does the thingy thing, then... Label it that. Or if I'm working with somebody and they say something like they don't know what to call it and they make up some name, I'm like, no problem. And they just name it that and then they keep going and they're like, okay, you know, you'll remember that, right? You said it. Like, so <laughs> it works. Very out memorable. Well. Yeah, it's good. I think that uh, that kind of stuff is always uh, appreciated. So, but yeah, labeling and organization is the, uh, the key. And as I, you know, the more. The, the, and years go on and more organized again, like organizing the sequence pool more, even on just the regular shows, not just a tour, uh, organizing my view pool, organizing all sorts of other pools that I didn't organize in the beginning. 
and then finally was like, oh, this should have some sort of uh, sense to it at least. So I know which windows are where and it's predictable. And then you start to remember some of the names of views and numbers of views and you can assign them quicker and things like this also. So it's, uh, it, it's all, it all works out. I like being on different consoles now where uh, a show has been migrated through different programmers and you can kind of go through and you can see each person's fingerprint in there. Like, oh, you, that's a, you've got these Marshwinsky uh, macros in here. I can see some, <laughs> some Shimamoto stuff here. Oh, I can, I can definitely see that uh, Shimaleski has been in here. It's, you know? Yeah. It's very cool to be able to look at people's show files and be like, oh, I know that's a, that's, you know, that's so-and-so's file or that's this guy's file or whatever. So, and then being able to like look at files and see how other people's work and knowing your way is not always, you know, it works best for me, but it doesn't work best for everybody. And being able to look at other people's show files and be able to work out of them and being flexible enough to be the, you know, copy their user profile, change it just enough. So then you're kind of more familiar with where all the stuff is. And then uh, moving forward and, you know, just that's always good because you can fill in for people and then anytime. Yeah. Any show. I, I recently had the pleasure of, of inheriting a, a Deerson show file in Las Vegas and just look going through and looking at like, oh my God, he clearly had to take this from an MA1 to an MA2 because of some <laughs> of the ways that he had done things. I'm like, oh, that was that's a very clever way to work around because clearly this function wasn't working in MA1, but he had to like kind of convert MA1 speak to MA2 stuff. And it was like, wow, this is We've come a really long way since this. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. Uh, I have I have a I have a, I have a, a couple of MA ones that someone gave me, and I set one up this summer, and because I just hadn't used it in a long time, and it is uh, that you're kind of looking at it, and you're like, oh yeah, like no layout view, or like the layout view is like the bitmap view. It was just it was just very. I mean, it feels like Atari at this point, you know. Very, <laughs> compared to the MA2 and stuff like that. So it's, uh, it, it, it was a great console though. I love that console. You're almost like an archeologist going back and exploring how the cavemen did it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, before that it was all sorts of other stuff. That was the, when the MA1 came out, man, the faders moved, it was so sophisticated. When it first came out, it was amazing. Now it's funny to look at it and think of how 8-bit it is, but it is, you know, it's 20, over 20 years old. So it's- uh, Oh man. It's an old machine at this point. So You're it's making me feel old. It's hey. <laughs> welcome to the club. It's <laughs> so it's uh it is what it is. That stuff, but it's just it's uh I don't know, it was interesting. I just brought it out too because it's the like technically in at the office of activity, we have a one. I brought one of my ones there, and then we have a two and a three, and just to see all those consoles in the same room or in like the three separate areas when I have them. Uh, it's interesting just to see the, how it's it's changed. In, in the, the yeah, it's pretty tough to deny evolution when you see all three of them sitting together. You're like, yeah, this is a clear evolution here. <laughs> you can control everything from one console pretty much no matter how big your show is at this point. Yeah. <laughs> you know, years ago, even on the film stuff, I'd have two expression 2Xs because we had more than 800 channels. So it's like one of those, you know, you'd, so you'd have two consoles and the same thing you were saying before, like making everything work together on multiple purposes yeah. so I, I think it, it's it's cool where we're at it's cool where we're at it's fun learned a lot of stuff yeah that actually uh, brings me to my last question because we are uh, just about out of time but now you have moved from the being the person who 
is asking to be an, an intern of sort to the person who is being asked. I'm sure that you're still getting the similar emails that I'm getting like, Hey, so what do I do? How do I help? Or can you, can you help me reach out to this person or that person? Are you, are you enjoying that role? A little bit. It's interesting. Cause it's not a role that I ever like was trying to, to be in, I guess, kind of thing. I kind of always just did this to pay my bills and I never really was thinking about it and that kind of thing. And I'm not the most patient of people. Sometimes I'm very good at like, when people tell me like, this is how it works. I'm like, great. And I'll, I can do that, you know, and then you figure out like why as you're doing things, you know, from learning kind of like, a, you know, like craftsmanship, you kind of get somebody tells you to do something, you do it. And then you're like, oh, okay, I see what's going on. I get this kind of thing. So it, it's just an interesting um, position, but yeah, it's nice. I, you know, I, I encourage people to, if they have MA questions or if they have comments, I've, I've shared my show file with a couple people uh, with some stuff taken out of it sometimes, but uh so I don't give all my secrets away, but uh, so they get a basic sense of maybe how to set their views up and things like that. And, you know, and, and just talk about uh, some other concepts of keeping things simple and and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I just, you know, I'm not on that many gigs that really can accommodate having an intern or somebody come at this point sometimes because we're also being traveling and stuff like that. But uh, I'm happy to, to, if people have questions, to answer them and be as helpful as possible as whenever I can. So it's, it's, it's nice. That's a, a good feeling to be able to, what it takes for somebody to ask you for help as a gender and as a species, we're not really good at asking for help. So knowing that somebody has actually built up the courage to ask like, Hey, Justin, I need, I need help with this. It must feel good to know that they're asking you and that, that it took them that amount of time to build up the courage. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I always, I'm, I'm always more confused. My, my question was like, how did this person hear about me? <laughs> <laughs> like, this is the first interview I've ever done. So it's, <laughs> it's one of those, uh, my, the, it's really like in my head, I'm like, why, why did you think to call me? But no, it's, it's been, um, it, it's, it's, it's very flattering and I'm happy to, to like I said, I'm, I, I reached out and people were receptive and it's also one of those things basically it's, it's, uh, and this is kind of how I was mentored, but I was always shown how to help myself. Like there are certain things you should be looking up and you should be being proactive about it. And then when you get stuck, when you're already trying to be proactive, that's when you, you ask your mentor for help. Like if you didn't try to find the information from three places first, you shouldn't be trying to ask somebody who could be possibly very busy or whatever engaged uh, in, into, to uh, some sort of question that you could clearly read in the manual or look at something. If you don't understand what it says in the manual or how that function and works, then it's like, that's more appropriate to start being asked some questions. So yeah, like yeah. I, I think like, you know, to directing people towards resources uh, and and all that kind of stuff is, is, uh, is great. And I'm happy to do that and be as friendly and fun as possible. Uh, meeting people at LDI at the trade show and stuff like that is always a pleasure. Because uh, there's so many people that you're kind of having conversations with, maybe online or through email, and then you get to meet them in person, which is great. And uh, you know, so I always encourage people to reach out and and ask for help. And uh, if you don't get it from the, you know, keep 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 reaching out and don't give up. If you really, you know, determination is really what it takes to to make it in anything. So. Yeah, that's a really good way to end the podcast. Thank you so much, philosophies, words of wisdom. I think this is all really good stuff for anybody who's 
kind of looking to take that next step. Thank you, Justin. I appreciate it. Absolutely. My pleasure, Chris.